Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the show, I'm welcoming my friend James Gracie to come on and talk about Paris-Brest Paris. In fact, our conversation went so long, I'm going to break it up into two episodes. Have you ever seen those riders typically on steel bikes with maybe a rack up front and certainly a bag on the front of their bars, riding the roads, potentially coming home at 6, 7 p.m. as you've long shelved your gravel bike and been doing something else? The type of rider that's been out all day, maybe they're wearing wool clothing, but they've got a little bit of a throwback vibe. I was a little bit unfamiliar with the sport of randoneering, but along the way, I've actually had a couple guests. I remember Jan from Renee Hearst was a big randonnée rider, and also Tim from Kitspo showed up one day riding one of those bikes on a ride I was on. I never really thought too much about it and about the history of the sport, but with James signing up or attempting to sign up for Paris-Brest Paris this year, I dug in a little bit more and learned the history of the sport, learned that it's a hundred-year-old event. It's the oldest cycling event in the world, learned a little bit about what it takes to qualify. I became fascinated by both the sheer endurance challenge of this 1,200-kilometer ride, but also the culture around it. Now, as James will mention in our conversation, he's relatively new to the scene. I've known him for 25 years and always known him to attack many a cycling challenge, but he wasn't part of that randonneur culture much more than six, eight months ago. But he dove right in, got his qualification for Paris-Brest Paris, and completed the 1,200-kilometer journey just in the nick of time under his 84-hour time limit that he set off for himself. I thought the story was so fascinating, I thought I would share it with you. With gravel bikes, we have a similar type setup to these randonneur bikes. They're often they're designed around comfort and obviously long-distance performance, just like many of our gravel bikes. So the way I think about it is the randonneur community is the kissing cousin, the older cousin, of the gravel cycling community. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. As I said, I'll break it up in the middle to put it into two roughly 45-minute episodes. And with that, here's my conversation with James Gracie. James, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Craig Dalton. Welcome to the kitchen. Welcome to the kitchen. This is where it all happens. (laughs) This is a little bit of a detour for the Gravel Ride podcast because there wasn't a lot of gravel in Paris, Brest, Paris. But Talking to you over the months in preparation for this and talking to you during the event, it just seems too good not to capture these stories because I've always thought after I had learned about randonneering through a couple past guests, I've always felt like it's the kissing cousin of gravel and a lot of the mentality is similar to some of these gravel events. So that's a long introduction, but I want to first start off by just asking a little bit about your background Super quickly, where'd you grow up and sure. how'd you discover the bike? Uh, I grew up in Mississippi, uh, which is not a super bike heavy uh, area. And I um, bought a bicycle when I was 12 years old for $120 from Sears. 
I thought it was awesome. And I remember going uh, my very first time that I reached another city limit sign, which was like four miles from where I lived. <laughs> I was like, I just rode to another city. It was Marion. And I was like, that is awesome. I, was, I went home. I was like, I rode to another town. And then after that, for years, I would ride to another town or ride to another town. I thought it was incredible. And so I kept buying bicycles that were, you know, probably beyond my capacity to, to spend on a bike. But that's where my... That's where I wanted to spend whatever money that I had. Yeah. And did you start sort of taking bigger and bigger adventures as you became older? And Yeah. 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 So I, I would take, uh, when I was 15 or 16, I'd ridden maybe up to, maybe up to a hundred miles. And, uh, when I was in college, I took some bicycle trips. I worked at a bike shop and so I got inexpensive gear there with a discount and I would take trips either back to my home which was like the first time I did that trip was 140 miles it's 90 on the regular highway uh, or I would I, when I was in college I'd ridden down to Florida to see a friend on a mountain bike because I didn't have another one and I just I thought it was awesome from Mississippi down to Florida yeah and did it were you it sounds like the bicycle was a mode of adventure and exploration yeah. but were you were you discovering racing? Were you interested in racing? Uh, I did mostly. I, ro- I raced a little bit of bikes. Mostly I did triathlons. Okay. I was doing triathlons when I was uh, 14 and 15 in Mississippi, which is some of the oldest triathlons are, are from Mississippi. Was that right? They were from the, they're from the mid to late 70s. Huh. Oddly. Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama has some of the oldest ones. Super interesting. And uh, I was a swimmer growing up and... And I would run to swim practice, like when I was 12 and 13, which is a couple miles each way. And so I just kind of, it made sense to put them together. Yeah. And I raced triathlons for 30 years. And you moved yeah. progressively into the longer distances. Into, into longer distances. And I did longer trips either by myself. Like I bet a friend of mine when I was 25 that I could ride the Natchez Trace in three days. I bet him $20. And I have his twenty dollars still in my in my closet that he signed, uh, and it was super hard. It was really hard. It was in July. It was a hundred and something degrees every day, and there's no services on the Natchez Trace, um, which is actually this this pen that I have uh, given to you is actually a challenge, going to be a challenge pen at some point in this talk about this Natchez Trace four forty four that you and I may could do together. Okay, uh, next year, and. Uh, I did, I did that ride and it, it, it was, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And I really enjoyed that. It's a, it's by far the best way to see the world. You're going slow enough that you can see everything, but fast enough that you're not walking and you're not going to see the same thing over and over again for days on end. Yeah. You can really, you can really move through an area or a state or a, even a country on a bicycle in not that much time. And it's, it's, but it's hands down the best way to see the world. So I'm going to fast forward yeah. maybe 30 years yeah. of time. <laughs> yeah. So many, many Ironman under your belt. Yeah. You and I connected probably 20 years ago yeah. doing Ironman triathlons, yeah. but we've also had some other off-road adventures together. Yeah. We've done the Leadville 100 yeah. together um, we've gone to Europe a couple of times, road riding with a group of friends and gravel and gravel and gravel yeah. and gravel. Yes. Yeah. For the listener, James was on that Girona 
gravel trip in November of 2022 that I talked about on the podcast previously. So you've done a bunch of things. Cycling's always been part of your life. I've been fortunate enough to be your friend and been invited to do things with you and encouraged to do things with you. Earlier this year, the beginning of the year, you came up to me and you're like, hey, I'm going to do Perry Breast Paris. You want to do it? And you said, here, there's all these things you need to do in order to do it. Yeah. And I was like, dude, that's the type of invitation that I love, one, but two, <laughs> takes me months and months and months to get my head around. So Perry Brest Paris is the oldest cycling race mm -hmm. in the world. It goes from Paris to Brest, back to Paris, mm -hmm. 1,200 kilometers, self-supported and a 90 hour time limit is that correct there are uh there are three different time limits that are self-selected so okay. you can choose to do an 80 hour time limit an 84 hour time limit or a 90 i chose 84 okay so uh, we can get into that to just set the stage yep. because this is the gravel cycling podcast yep. the sport of rendoneering in cycling is its own interesting thing that's been around obviously since the 1890s yeah but it's this concept that you've got multiple distances that are sort of official distances of mm -hmm. randonneur cycling can you just kind of talk through a little bit of your understanding of it yeah so it uh the reason it probably ties directly back to a gravel podcast is 130 years ago they were it was it was born in gravel it was born on either dirt roads or farm roads or whatever they had at the time this predates almost automobiles. Uh, they had automobiles, but they didn't have roads. And for the most part, I, I haven't done, I've maybe done one or two brevets that didn't have gravel in some section. Some of them are six miles or eight miles. There was some gravel uh, in Perry Breast, not much, but percentage-wise pretty small, but it may have been a couple of miles. And... The idea that you're doing it on your own, especially back 130 years ago, that you're doing it on your own, self-supported, likely with solid rubber tires back then. I don't remember when. They wouldn't have had a need for pneumatic tires at that point. And have to change everything and carry everything that you need to support your bike. Because you might get lucky and have a break in a town with a bike shop. And you might not. You might have a break in the middle of nowhere at 3 in the morning. And so the idea behind that and self-reliance is core to randoneering. It is core to the series that they have. It's core to just the whole idea of I'm going to go do this thing, whether it's a certified ACP brevet or whether you just want to go ride for whatever the distance is. Usually they're pretty long by yourself and you want to be able to fix and do everything that you need and whatever stumbling blocks you encounter along the way that you will be able to overcome them on your own yeah or through the assistance of another randonneur or whatever right but that's that's still on your own if you are really hungry and you go ask the farmer for an apple yeah he gave you the apple but you have to go get it got it uh and so that's what what uh that's that's what the whole sport is about that's what the whole um uh, section of cycling is about and they're on gravel all the time. Like I rode a gravel bike on this ride, as did a significant amount of people. Yeah, when like, I, look, I wouldn't do that on a road bike. When I see, you know, when I see the people in the Bay Area that I consider to be randonneurs, they're yeah. often 
on steel bikes with a, ba- a large bag up front. Yeah. And I would always see them and think, that, you know, that guy or girl is probably out for a long ride. And you'd see them coming through our town in Mill Valley, going yeah. back to San Francisco all the time. at like 6 p.m., like yeah. having been out all day. So the, the, and the tire, I mean, the tire sizes that I often see on these road bikes were, were, were quite big. Yeah, they're 35s or 40s. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I had, um, I had Jan Hernay from Rene Hurst tires on at one point, and he was telling me in the background of our conversation about the type of riding he likes to do and how gravel was nothing new for him because he'd right. been riding, you know, 47 C tires tire on a road bike for many, many years. Yeah. You have, uh, like the idea that you would do it on a, on a road bike with 23 or even 25s. It, it's that's pretty uncomfortable. You're on the bike for a long time, and comfort is comfort is key. And a gravel bike has longer wheelbase, has usually bigger tires, usually run lower pressure, so you have less you have less you know shakes and rattles yeah. in your hands and and in your backside. And it's just a more it's a way more comfortable ride. So you weren't part of the San Francisco randonneering community as of a few years ago, but mm-hmm. as I understand it from you, you had a, an acquaintance or a friend who had done Perry Brest Paris before and yeah. introduced the idea to you? Uh, I actually learned about Perry Brest Paris in 99. Okay. And the guy that told me was a, worked at one, it was a customer of mine in Mississippi. And he told, he had just come back from the 99 ride and he told me about it. I was like, I'm going to do that. That is definitely something I'm going to do. Yeah. And then when I found out how there's no brevets in Mississippi or Alabama where I lived at the time or very few. And there was no internet really. So you couldn't really figure out how to do it. So I backburned it and had thought about it for a while. I didn't, I didn't even know it was every four years until last year, I think. Uh, and then, uh, one of my friends from Mill Valley, Ray Keen had gone, uh, to the 2019, uh, uh, edition. And, then he was telling me all about it, and I followed him the year that he did it in 2019. And and he said it's not that hard. You join a club, right? You have to join a club that is Rusa, the randonneurs of the United States, uh, Rusa sponsored. That they have ACP rides. So the ACP rides are brevets that are specific to qualification for Perry breast and probably some other ones, but it has to be an ACP sanctioned event. And to get into those, you have to do four qualification rides within the prior year before Perry breast. Uh, so they're not all over the place. And that's one of the things that made it seem so arduous back 15 and 20 years ago was that I don't know where any of these things are. I've never ridden overnight. I've never yeah. ridden for that long. Self, I, I was had been a bicycle mechanic for a couple of years, but I doubt I could, you know, relace up a wheel on the fly to try to get you to the finish line, and uh, so listening to him go through all of that, it sounded like maybe maybe it was doable. And then when it came back around in uh, this year for twenty three, but he and I started discussing it in twenty twenty two because you really some people prepare for it for four years. Most people that I spoke to prepared for it for two years. And I started uh, training. I, I really got registered for this in January or February. 
And so you only have a couple of months to do all four qualification brevets. And what are the, what are the distances of those brevets? The, the distances for qualification are 200K, a 300K, a 400K, and a 600K. And it's not just riding them. You have to ride them in a prescribed amount of hours, In a right? prescribed amount of hours. Yeah. So like the 600K that I did had a 40-hour time limit, which is totally doable unless you have a problem. If you have a problem in the middle of the night, you have to wait for support or to get to a town that can help you out. You're probably not going to, yeah. you're probably not going to make it. As you sort of said, you had a pretty intense schedule because of the late time in which you started this pursuit. Uh, most people, all in. yeah, most people had already done one or two that allows you to pre-register kind of at the in, end of 2020, 2022. Yeah. And so then you can convert that to a full registration. You're almost guaranteed to get in. And I did, I didn't do that. And so I had one flexible date from February until the race okay. or until it's not a race till the event that I may could have moved one thing, but I would have had to, I would, instead of driving to Sacramento to do the 600 K, I would have had to fly to Southern California or okay. Arizona to get it in. And it just happened that every one of them, like even when I started the 200 uh, K the day after spring break, I hadn't ridden a hundred miles since I was with you in Spain, which was six months before that. And I was yeah. just as worried about that as I was about the, the event because it had just been a while. Yeah. And, um, and I flew in, I got back, I got home late at like midnight and left at four to go do the event. But I don't know anything about these events. <laughs> and the second one, uh, that I did, there were only four people signed up. You don't know that. Yeah. So I showed up and there was a guy on a motorcycle there, three other riders. And he said, well, there's only four of you. So have a good ride. And that was it. Then we were off. There's no like start. There's no yeah. banner. There's no start gun. He's like, have a good time. But there are, there are check-in points that you have to get stamped or something. Is there right? are, uh, and I did, I did, I brought my, my, uh, passport, which is what you have to stamp in the ride. Uh, and so in the, in the ones that are, that are not a big event, like the one for four people, they are non, uh, there are controls that you have to stop at and you either have to purchase something and get a receipt that's time stamped, yeah, or take a picture of yourself in front of wherever this control is. So for a 300 K there might be six or seven controls where you have to roll up to the grocery store or a, one of them was a stop sign, uh, an intersection sign. There's nothing. You just have to take a picture of yourself in front of it. Yeah. And if you forget to do that, then you don't, you, you don't you know, qualify. And the, the, your success in these qualifiers, mm -hmm. does it get logged somewhere? It gets logged with RUSA and with uh, San okay. Francisco randonneurs. So you joined a local club mm -hmm. and you submit the fact that you did the, this yep. event and you, you have your control pictures and they log it we, somewhere. Yeah, so you submit those either pictures or receipts. You just scan all the receipts and you send them to whoever was in charge of the event that day, the qualification event. Yeah. And so if the event is over Sunday at midnight, you have until Tuesday afternoon at some point to get them either all of their receipts or the pictures. And, you know, and then they see that you have gone to all of the locations in whatever appropriate time frame and send it into them. So 200 kilometers, 120 miles, mm -hmm. I can get my head around. I've yeah. done that. 300 kilometers, 180 miles. Yeah. I can stretch my head 
right. around that and say like, okay, start early in the morning, keep plugging away. Possibly I'll get that done. I've done, I think maybe on our coast ride, maybe we did 130 miles yeah. one year, which was the longest I've ever ridden. Okay. Yeah. So 180, the 300K, maybe you get it done in, in one kind of yeah. fell swoop. Yeah. You don't, you don't stop for, you don't stop to like sleep. Okay. And then you don't even, you don't take naps. You just, you, you'll you, stop to have lunch. You just keep plugging away. But yeah. obviously like you're starting in the, in the daylight and you're ending in the darkness or and starting in, in the, the dark. dark. Yeah. yeah. That's like an 18 hour ride probably. Yeah. Uh, some, somewhere in there. You're probably 15 yeah. to 18 hours. Yeah. Depending on the, depending on how much climbing you're doing. Yeah. And then now bumping up to 400K, mm-hmm. 600K, to me, that's just otherworldly. Like it's just a territory I, yeah. I haven't been in before. It's definitely, I, de- I had the exact same thoughts at 400K. If I, I couldn't have done it in a different order. I couldn't have started with the 600. I, would, I don't know why I would have done. I wasn't really mentally ready for that. Yeah. And so the 400K is you're not going to bed. You're going to take an hour and a half long lunch and sit down as much as you can wherever that is. Do you remember the time limit for a 400K? I don't. Okay. Uh, we came in, at, we started at, see, it's either six or seven, and then we came in about 2 a.m. Okay. And you sort of you sort of implied this, that you couldn't have started out and done a 600K right off the bat. Yeah. But what did you learn? I mean, you, you did ride with some other pe- people, some more experienced randonneurs over time, one right? Of the, one of the true benefits of, of doing it in San Francisco or or the Bay Area, including Sacramento, because there's a lot of lot of uh, randonneurs in Davis and yeah. Sacramento, is that they have a lot of experience. So I would ride with them and just ask question after question after question. What do you do? I, I didn't even know there was a bag drop until we were on a, a uh, 400K and a guy said, yeah, well, yeah, there's a backdrop service you can sign up for. I thought I was going to have to carry everything that I needed yeah. for three and a half days. And fo- just food is a lot. Um, you know, I knew I could stop and buy things. But they also said, you can't stop and go to a grocery store and get a Cliff Bar. Like, it's not how it works. Like, they don't have those things there. You can, you're going to get a ham and cheese sandwich or you're going to get a croissant and a coffee. And that's what you're getting. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I don't know if I could make it on that so when i learned all of these things riding with people that had done four perry brass or and hearing all of their stories one year it was 100 degrees one year it rained and basically got rained out a super high dnf rate maybe 12 years ago and to know all of the things that could possibly happen it was definitely a boost because i'm learning and asking them questions for hour after hour after hour and all you got to do is swap poles yeah. And that's all. it's a free it's a free gift of edu- it's a free education if you just want to do some pulling with them and wait on like one guy was sick and so we waited. He didn't feel well, so you wait on him and make sure that they are getting the best support from you because you're going to turn around and need yeah. it from somebody else. Yeah, I think it's so interesting cuz I mean, you know, many of us have road riding backgrounds and shorter distances, mm-hmm. you're drafting you're breaking away. There's a kind of push and pull of the Peloton, but there seems like there's more community to this because way, way into the, the mileage, you need people there. There was, uh, the, the 300 K that I did. I didn't, I hadn't really, I didn't really meet anybody on the 200 because I was in a hurry and had to get, go pick up one of my kids. And, um, so I didn't want to stay and chat. 
And the 300K, we were probably 40 miles in, and I had a battery die on my shifter. I didn't have a spare battery. I just didn't even check it. Yeah. And I looked for, I made four stops for batteries. It was Sunday. Places are closed. They don't have this very specific battery shifter uh, or shifter battery. And he said, I've got one. And then he had to loan me this battery. Had to loan me a screw, <laughs> screwdriver. If he had done that, I wouldn't. Have, I would not have been able to go to Perry Breast because I didn't have another. Yeah. Didn't have any flexibility in my schedule. Yeah. And when I was asking, I said, "I really do appreciate this. It, it means a lot to me." He's like, "Oh no, we take care of everybody." His words were, "We take care of everybody because we will need to be taken care of." And I saw that over and over and over again. And not only the the lead up. Uh, qualification brevets but also in the event people you don't know you've never met it's it's not unlike a professional cycling event where two people are in the breakaway or four or five they're working together for a common goal helping each other and then at some point that falls apart but for that for that time period they are essentially on the same team you're essentially doing things for one another even though you have diametrically opposed, you know, team programs, and you will eventually split apart and sprint to the finish, and yeah. you hope to crush them, like that. Ne- that crushing part never really happens here, but, but if you do, you know, somebody's uh, going two or three miles an hour faster than another one, like you're gonna, it can't continue. Like they're not there to yeah. necessarily get you to the finish line if you had just met. But there is definitely a, a commonality in the riders and in the community where it's they support one another all the time. And likely someone would say that that during the event, I helped them significantly. And I definitely would say that I was helped significantly uh, morale and, you know, people uh, coaxing me along at, at certain points. Yeah. So for the 400K and the 600K, are you sleeping during those? Distances? Not for the 400. It's just too, it's too quick. I mean, you're, it's, um, it was uh, 20 something hours, Okay. I think. Um, and that was actually a pretty flat ride. The 300K was harder. It had a lot of climbing in it. And I was riding with people faster than me. Yeah. So I was struggling to keep up with them every time. And then the 600, we went to we went to sleep on purpose because I wanted to see what it felt like to ride. Uh, we rode two, 250 or 260 miles, and I wanted to see what it felt like to sleep little and then wake up and ride again. Yeah. Did you sleep in a hotel? Or we slept in a hotel. Okay. Yeah, there was not a predetermined. We just got to Winters, I think, or somewhere in, in uh, um, kind of by Sacramento. And did you sleep like... A considerable amount of time or just a small amount I of time? thought it was uh, I <laughs> thought it was not very long <laughs> it, we slept for like three or three and a half hours okay and then people that came in after us when we went out to get breakfast because so I think we came in at we got a room at like maybe 2.30 and so I went out to get breakfast in the hotel and we said oh, what, where's they're like oh you're the last ones up and I know people came in after us and they yeah. maybe lay down for like two hours. Right. Crazy. Yeah. Well, it doesn't make sense to me. I only sleep for two <laughs> hours. Well, especially after 260 miles, 
if you have plenty of time to finish, well that's the thing like we were not yeah. in danger of of not making yeah it. but i think they were they were probably just using it as a training experience yeah i mean and it's interesting we're recording this right on the heels of lachlan morton uh setting the tour divide record mm-hmm. we haven't talked about this yeah. but he he basically committed he's like i don't want i want to sleep every single night and there'd been this trend towards sleeping less and less and less right. and he's like I just need to sleep. I don't want to be miserable doing this. Yeah. And he still beat the record. So yeah. it's just kind of curious to hear you say that. The other crazy thing is, so you've done, you've miraculously, in, in my opinion, you managed to squeeze in all the required all training the brevets, events, yeah. all the brevets. You've gone up to 600 kilometers, which is insane. But the friggin' event is 1200 kilometers. kilometers. So, and I, yet, I mean, we can skip through. You had a busy summer. But you get on a plane, you go to France, yeah. got your bike ready, your gear ready. Now what? Um, we were, we went to, I went to France with my family and we were there 10 days before the event. And I, I rode, I, I had a very uh, busy summer with just kid stuff. And so I didn't ride. The only riding I did in the summer was basically the Brevets. To, to qualify and, and an to, occasional paradise loop with me for one I did hour a paradise loop. <laughs> i mean it wasn't much and i did a bike trip with one of my kids to uh, summer camp which is right before Truckee, which was a which was a two and a half days and so i hadn't really ridden much and the only thing that you uh, for for me personally some people would probably ride more i guess is if you just think about it a lot and you think about the position you're going to be in and you try to prepare mentally for what you know is going to happen. There's going to be a time in this ride where you think, what am I doing? I'm not ready for this. I don't have legs for this. I don't have the energy for this. I've made a mistake. I got, I got to quit. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're going to get there. And so I think about it a lot. So even when I was on spring break and I had this, like just a 200 K coming up, my kids would come up to me and ask, like, what are you thinking? Are you just sitting there? And I was like, I'm thinking about a ride that I have to do yeah. in seven days that I'm nervous about. But I know that if I think about it enough, it will definitely help me during, it will definitely yeah. help me prepare. As, if it's, not uh, as much as, as riding itself close to it. But there's, yeah, there's some, there's some great lesson there, James. And just like, you can preview in your mind the things that yeah. can go wrong. A hundred percent. And you just get ready for them. Yeah. And you're like, all right, if this happens, what am I going to do? If this happens, what am I going to do? It's it's just like any other training. If you know any training yeah. you do for anything in life, whether it's professional or some personal training or athletic training, put yourself in that position so you know you have that in the bank, and I can go to the bank and make the withdrawal when I need. Whether it's in the energy department because I need to keep going, or mentally that hey, I've already been here and I'm ready to have the answer of like this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Right. Even if it's, I'm going to chill out and sit down and I'm going to drink as much fluid as I can for 10 minutes. Even if it's just that, I'm ready for that and I'm prepared for that. Yeah. And so uh, going into that, I, I did get to ride some when my family was, we were at Il de Rey and it was, it's a bicycle friendly island where you just ride between these towns. And so I would do a couple of rides there and I rode, I rode uh, once in Paris trying to fix a flat i was like i'm just gonna go ride to every bike store <laughs> but and they were all closed <clears throat> and so I, I didn't really have time to think about it honestly like much until the day before the event because i'm with my 
family and we have all of these activities that we're trying to kind of squeeze in and let the kids enjoy the area. And then when they're getting ready to go and I'm getting ready to, to start was the same day. So I went to pack it, pick up with them so they could see all of it. And I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that, um, they got to see like the excitement of it and, People are really over the top in costumes and all of the different Velomobiles. One guy was on an Elliptigo, which I don't think he finished. He may have, I don't know. But I couldn't imagine. Like, if you think what the the ride itself is hard, like being on an Elliptigo <laughs> yeah. and standing up for three and a half days, like I couldn't yeah. imagine. And uh, there was a lot of excitement there. So it was really, it was awesome to get ready for it, even though you're not, there's no way to like, there's nothing to do. There's no more training you could do, and even if you did, you would just be hurting. You'd be you know, putting yourself yeah. in a in a worse position by trying to go like train, yeah. loosening up after a long flight and dr- driving a lot. Like that was needed for sure. Quick detour just on your equipment. Mm-hmm. So what what were you riding? What you know? What frame material? What kind of bike? Uh, riding steel. It's an Olivetti. It's a frame builder out of. Uh, he was in Mill Valley and now he's in Colorado. Yeah. And um thirty twos, I think. I switched tires right before I left, based on the guy at Sports Basement. <laughs> <laughs> I said, What do you think about these? And and they were and I ended up with tubes in them uh at the end because I couldn't find a hole in one of them before I started, so I put a tube in it, but I changed it. I, I searched four four flats. And then are you, what kind of bags are you using? Like where are they located on the bike? And are you preparing to sleep on the ground somewhere yeah. or are you not? So my favorite bag is the bag that Craig Dalton let me borrow, <laughs> which is my top tube bag that has a little magnet on it because I yeah. couldn't find it anywhere. It was awesome because you can get to everything really fast. Uh, I did carry, um, I carried a, uh, like a bike, bike packers bag off the back mm-hmm. uh, that's expandable Yeah, that you could get, you know, I got uh, had arm warmers, lots of food in there. Uh, emergency, satellite emergency, like blanket. I ended up with a sleeping bag in there because I I didn't know where we. It was supposed to rain at one point, so I grabbed a sleeping bag from my from my um, uh, drop bag, and I had a down and I had a top tube bag. So the top tube bag, all I had in it was pills. I've got pills for you know, B vitamins and multivitamins and amino acid pills and lot tons of salt. I took all the salt that I needed for the whole ride. Um, um, caffeine. But I'll, I'll, you've probably seen me like go through a bag of pills. Like there's a bunch of different things in there. It takes a lot. To, it's a lot. To yeah. Keep us old men and going. And you keep going. Like there's a lot of just uh, vitamins that you take to make sure you're not deficient in something. And I have, even though I couldn't pinpoint, oh, if I if I'd had more vitamin B or vitamin D or E or potassium or something, uh, that wouldn't have happened. But I've never not finished, and I usually just keep the, a steady flow of all of those things going, kind of all day. Was that something that's just a James Gracie? I've been an athlete for my whole life thing. Yeah. Or did you, did you learn that from others? Yeah. No, it's just what I've been doing for yeah. anything long uh, over over the years, and either trying to prevent a cramp or you know or just feeling like ah this stinks i really want to quit like in keeping your mood elevated like rhodiola i did one guy i I take rhodiola pretty regularly one person that had done four 
uh, Perry Breast before. He said, yeah, rhodiol is, is key. I was like, I'm taking rhodiol. What is that? It's uh, it's for mental function and acute. So you like keep your mind okay. uh, sharp yeah. is, is what I would call it. That's what how he described it too. I was like, I do take that. And if I could pinpoint one thing to take, it's that. Besides salt and potassium, magnesium. Super interesting. It's that. I saw yeah. people, I, I would notice my mind going on a detour for sure. And I would have, I would, I would have some rhodiola and then it would, I'd come back to like, Oh, I was just on a mental trip, <laughs> mental trip that did not exist. Well, we might get into, yeah. if we have time, some of the mental trips, some of yeah. your fellow riders took you on yeah. in their own journeys. Yeah. So you're at the start line, yep. as you said before, Perry Brest Paris every four years, very yeah. international. Yeah. 71 yeah. countries, uh, at some of the larger controls, they had 28 interpreters. Wow. Um, and so somebody's not getting inter- interpreted somewhere is, is my guess. Yeah. Uh, but I, they had, um, it's a very international event that has, everybody is so excited. You don't really notice the excitement until kind of later in the ride, because that's why that's, that's literally what's keeping them going is they're a hundred percent focused on this event and may have been focused on this event for 16 years and never completed it. And have started it and didn't finish. Yeah. And started and didn't finish. Most people you talk to were repeat Perry Brest Paris randonneurs, and they had a, they had you know end up in the in the bus. Yeah, there's not even a bus. I made that up. You have to figure <laughs> out your way. You have to figure out your way when you stop. Yeah. You have to figure out your way home. And so they all had a story of like I was very far from finishing. Yeah. My first time or my second time. Yeah, clearly the math wasn't going to add up. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned there's multiple different start times. One of them was you could start with 90 hours. You start at night. Yeah. Sunday night. Sunday night. You elected to start 84 hours Sunday, Monday morning. Monday morning, Mm -hmm. 515. Yeah. Which seemed Uh, logical when you and I were discussing it at one point, but then the logic got lost immediately. Yeah. Everybody had different uh, rationales for whatever they picked. Obviously, the 80-hour group is going to be a faster group. Yeah. And so maybe there are faster riders in there, and you can catch your draft wherever you need. You don't If you're a 16-mile-an-hour like steady-state rider, you don't want to ride with the 13 because you're just pulling, right? It's not doing you any good. Yeah. You want to ride with the 16, 17. And so those guys also leave Sunday night. Uh, the 90 hours, which is the bulk of the – the bulk of the entire event contingent. Uh, I think there were, I think there were 5,000 people or 5,500 uh, or maybe even 6,000 that left Sunday night, Sunday afternoon. So they start at four and they end at 10, I think is the last, the last leave time. So they're consistently sending out all of these people. And then I didn't realize that it was broken down that way. So I left, there were only, there was only uh two or three groups behind me. So I'm at the end. Okay. And so if the fast people in those two or three groups pass you, which they did very quickly, uh, there's nobody else to like help you out. Yeah. Cause you're, I mean, you're going into it. You're, you're hoping that you're going to find some Patago groups to yeah. draft, to with ride, to, to ride, ride with. with. And the first day it was definitely like that. The first hour of the event, it was, they blasted off. Like I'm hanging on barely. I'm like, what am I doing? I, I knew I should slow down, but I'm also don't want to be yeah. literally the last person in the entire 8,000 yeah. 
riding by myself. I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, the temptation for me to follow a wheel is just too strong. It's too great. And that's how, that's how it is at every event. Yeah. You just can't, even when you think I'm going plenty slow, you're going too fast. Yeah. Just slow down. Yeah. And, um, and so they, they're, they took off. I don't know how fast they're going. We're, I think in my first, like in my first couple of checks, we were going 28 K something like this, like way too fast. And there's, yeah. you know, it's all rolling hills. There's about 40,000 feet of climbing in the whole event. No mountains. It's just rolling hills the whole way. <clears throat> and the groups, the group that I left with, there was maybe 2,000 that morning. Well, 1,500 of them are ahead of me. They're gone. And the fast guys of that, those groups are gone, gone. And then there's about 500 behind me. Each group is about 250 to 300 people. I was X. There's X, there's Y, there's Z, and then there's plus. I think mm-hmm. the plus were maybe ads. And so there's yeah. there's maybe 700 people behind me. And so that makes the second day, someone did tell me, if you leave in the 84-hour group, you're going to be riding by yourself a good bit. Yeah. And the second day I rode by myself almost the whole almost the whole day. And what kind of terrain are you riding on? You mentioned it's undulating. It's no big mountains, but obviously mostly paved as you said earlier but yeah. are you going through little french villages all the time okay it's it's uh it's consistently small towns even if you got into a big town i don't know a big town may have been ten thousand people yeah so not that big it may be a little touristy <clears throat> and it's beautiful french countryside over and over i mean it's just like it's uh i never got bored of it but it it was to say it's farms and fields and yeah. livestock and sunflowers and corn and over and over and over again. And then through this, through the small towns, they would have roadside stands for you all over the place. Were they, were they at the control stations or just randomly at the, at the controls, they have meals. And so if you left in the 90 hour group, like Ray, my friend from mill Valley showed me a picture of one of his meals yeah. leaving in the 90 hour group. And I said, what is that? And he said, that was my meal at the second control. What did the picture of your meal look like? You don't want to take a picture of it. It was was terrible. (laughs) All the good food is gone. But I'm also not having to wait in line for food or the bathroom or to get your stamp. Yeah. So that's maybe a benefit. And I've maximized my my daylight riding, for sure, because I left at daybreak. Yeah. And so those, uh, the controls are, there were, I have some pictures of them. They're pretty big. They have a lot of support. They have a lot of people there. Some of them had uh, even mechanics shops. Like they'd have a couple of tents, and if you just needed something basic, they could help you out. Uh, they had food. They were in cafeterias and elementary schools and middle schools. I guess is where most of them were. Yeah. So they could set up and prepare meals, and we would have pasta or sandwiches or something like that. Uh, if you asked anybody, everybody that I talked to, including me, if you asked anybody, what is the defining characteristic of the event? It is the people of the region, hands down. They, this is their event. This is something that a 10 year old has been watching, you know, when he was six. And then maybe if he remembered when he was two with his parent, his parent was watching it with his parent or her parent. And then also with the great grandparents and this entire lineage of people would come out and a great grandfather is there with his great granddaughter. And he said, I'll watch this race with this ride with my great grandfather. Cause we've I've lived in the area the whole time. That's wild. They, they never, I mean, they were there to support you. People were past us for three days 
honking and cheering and uh, just people in the region. They would come up, they would have roadside stands with either a tent or no tent. They'd have a some kind of table or folding table or farm table out there with with items that they had prepared themselves, like cookies and cakes, tea, lemonade, coffee, uh, lots of baked goods, <laughs> lots of croissants <laughs> and Coke. Uh, some at night they would have soup that they've made for themselves. It's all free. Uh, and then uh, occasionally there would be a, ro- a big roadside tent that was set up as a fundraiser and you would pay a dollar for a soda and, you know, or a euro and two euros for sausages that were, I don't know if they were, they were amazing at the time. They were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I was very happy to have yeah. them. And uh, so you would then give a pin, right? So you'd give a pin to one of the kids that would come up very proudly and present you with all of the things that his either they have prepared or their parents have yeah. prepared for you. And they would be very excited to get the pin. They look at their mom and dad. And say, yeah. You were explaining to me offline San that San Francisco, all the different clubs create pins, pins from all over the world. You have a, a bunch of them on your yeah. person and you give them to anybody who shows you an act of kindness. Yeah. Or just somebody that. that's cheering and, or, you know, and, and you know, rooting for you basically. Yeah. Like at the end, I was meeting with, I had lunch with some of the people that I did the ride with. And I was like, they they really did. What we decided was that they really treated you like was a hero to them. Like you may as well have been a, a tour stage winner to them. They would come up and they would be so excited, especially the kids to see you. And it was amazing. Yeah. It was, it would bring you to tears that, especially because you're in a weird mental state and you're like, this is so great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, and them supporting you in that way day. And now you could be, it'd be three in the morning or five mm-hmm. in the morning or 10 at night. And there were people out in front yeah. of their homes or opening their garage, you know, that's literally on the street and they would open their garage. And say, oh, we got coffee and soup right. and, you know, uh, yeah. some fruits. And yeah. It was, it was awesome. So this is where we're going to take a break for part one. We'll have part two in your feed next week. I hope you're enjoying the conversation thus far. Our pal James is about halfway through Perry Brust Paris, and I can't wait for y'all to hear some of the stories that ensue in the next 600 kilometers. As a reminder, if you enjoy what we do here at the Gravel Ride Podcast, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. Or if you're able to support the show financially, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheel.